If you have your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 15, uh, and then one you'll be reading. And as always, the words are on the screen. All right. So now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Okay, to verse 11. And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had... Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to become impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him to, into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to, them, to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the, father, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For a son of mine was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. And then they began to celebrate. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Wonji. Um, a quick little announcement for those moms, especially who have to go pick up their kids. Uh, the screen outside is set up so you can go ahead and uh, sit in the lounge and, and catch the rest of service uh, after you go pick up your kids. Um, as we finish up the summer, uh, and a lot of the parents are excited because we have to send the kids back home while the kids are at school and the kids obviously aren't so excited, but as we finish up the summer and this series on the parables of Jesus, I think there's no more fitting way to end this series than perhaps to look at the greatest story ever told, the story of the parable of the prodigal's father and his two sons. Now, I've preached this text quite a bit here at KCPC, guest speaking at other places, uh, but this time around as I was preparing for it, and I was kind of leading up to this, and this has always been the plan uh, for the entire series to finish with this parable, um, but this time around, it took on a depth like I had never done before. Largely because I think what God did through my friend B, who was here last week and who spoke at the retreat, and also just the things that, um, that God has been doing in me, but two things that uh, B said at the retreat and that he kept telling, saying to me over and over again that I'm stealing from him, I think just really encapture the thing that I think forced me to draw deeper into this text unlike ever before. The first thing that he said at the retreat, and I'll uh, remind you, is that there's a difference between listening and hearing. Right? He's a kid who grew up in the hood in, in the city of Baltimore, right? and he listened to uh, the rap. And so he tells a story where uh, he was listening to the Wu-Tang Clan album, right? and he would go around kind of rapping, and people would hear him. And, and a lot of the black folk in the, in the city, they'd be like, boy, what you listening to? And he's like, I'm listening to Wu-Tang. And he's like, you listening to Wu-Tang? Right? And he'd be like, yeah, like, that's, that's my joint. Like, that's what I like. And he'd be like, yeah, you listening to it, but you ain't hear that. That there's a difference between listening and hearing. And if you hear it, it makes a difference. But if you're listening, it's just a sound that's going on in your mind, right? That you can listen, but unless you're hearing, it doesn't do anything. 
So this week and next week, I invite you to hear the parable rather than just listen to it, which is probably something you've done many, many times over. Again, everyone knows the story like the back of their hand. And the second thing, he, uh, thing that he kind of uh, encouraged us to do at the retreat that I'm, again, stealing from him is this idea of almost faith, right? That if you are listening but not hearing, then you might just have what he calls an almost faith, which, as you will see, is just no good, right? Because it's like this. If you almost graduated from high school, guess what? You still ain't a high school graduate, right? If you almost get the job, guess what? You're still unemployed. If you almost get married, sadly so, but you're still single. If you're almost saved, you know where you're going to be. And I mention these things because the series of parables that Jesus tells in Luke 15, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the father and his two sons, are in response to the Pharisees and the scribes who are complaining about the fact that Jesus eats with sinners and tax collectors. Jesus made a habit of just chilling with people like the Pharisees, like chilling with people and then, you know, of all kinds, but particularly the Pharisees and the scribes, right? Didn't like it. And the people that Jesus hung out with, the Pharisees and the scribes treated like they were diseased and infectious people. Their idea was if you're around these diseased and infectious people, you infected people, you become like them. And so the Pharisees and the scribes, they stayed away. Lest, you know, you contract the disease that they have, which is unrighteousness. And because they thought this way, if you read the Gospels through and through, you recognize that the Pharisees and the scribes in Jesus' time were the ones who listened, but they didn't hear that. And if you know the story, they end up not with Jesus, but with almost faith. Which means that if there's one parable, in my opinion, with the greatest risk for all of us to simply listen to but not hear, and then see that we have maybe this almost faith, it's this one. Because I think you'll recognize in this room we have a lot of we have people that belong in both categories, Pharisees and scribes, and then sinners and tax collectors. So today, as you hear this parable, I challenge you. So maybe perhaps forget everything that you know about this parable, about maybe the most famous story in the Bible so that you can truly hear it. And as we've been saying all summer long, and be scandalized by the parable to have our lives transformed by it. I'm reminded of what, this is a little side note, B said um, at the retreat, every time Jesus goes, it's story time, y'all, you know that's not a good thing. He's trying to tell you something. So again, would you hear rather than just listening so that indeed we would have our faith transformed? Now, let's just jump into the story real quick. A quick background of uh, the people that Jesus is talking to. This is important. Right? First, there's the scribes, and the scribes are professional theologians. They're like me, so basically Pastor Goose and I are semi-professors, so we, we, we study theology for a living. And there's the Pharisees. They're the lay leaders, so elders, deacons, your directors, Sunday school teachers, all of you, if you're in that category, you're one of the Pharisees, right? The tax collectors are the Jewish traders who collect money for Rome, right? They're basically considered the scum of the earth, uh, is what I call them. And then the sinners are basically unclean folk who are Again, like the tax collectors, they're more scum of the earth. That's the crew that's listening to Jesus and that's hanging out with Jesus, right? And that's what they're doing. And here's the problem. The problem is that the scribes and the Pharisees were all about upholding God's reputation by being obedient and keeping the law. If you're Asian or if you're Korean, you know how this works. You want to make your parents proud by doing the things that they tell you to do, and you don't want to shame their name. We've gone over this a a number of times, right? And so they didn't want to be sinners, and they didn't want to be annoying to God, and didn't want to not follow God and then shame his name. So all really good, really good intentions, right? But then the thing that they realized was if you're around the sinners, if you're around the tax collectors, that you would become like them. And therefore, you wouldn't do the things that God wanted you to do. 
But there's a problem with this idea, right? Because their idea was, if I hang around with the sinners and the tax collectors, myself who's trying to be holy and righteous, I might become like the unholy and the righteous. Which again, makes sense. But then they never considered that if I, the holy and the righteous, or at least I'm trying to be, hang around with the unholy and the righteous, isn't it possible that they could also become like me? They only saw it the one way. And so they were like, you know what? No, I'm staying away from that because I don't want to be just like them. And then more problematic, as you know, is then Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, perhaps God himself, one who went around calling himself God, was eating with these people, which is kind of like me going into downtown and then purposely waiting around downtown to the business area or wherever, right? And then waiting around two, three o'clock when the prostitutes and the people like that are done with their shift and then going out to eat with them and just hanging out with them all the time. That's basically the cultural equivalent. Which, as you would probably understand, if I was doing that all the time and you saw Instagram photos of me hanging out at a Waffle House at three o'clock in the morning with, you know, you know, ladies who are dressed, dressed the way that, you know, some prostitutes do and whatnot, they'd be like, oh, shoot. Oh, shoot. There'd be councils and meetings and whatnot. And that's what Jesus was doing. And people were complaining and, and grumbling. So then Jesus responds with these three parables. And the, and the capper, the one that kind of brings it all together, is this one about the father and the two sons. Now, before we jump in and in deep, I want you to notice two things about the whole entire parable. The first one is a how, just how over the top it is. This parable, in my opinion, is maybe one of the most ridiculous, insane, nonsensical, insensible, extreme, and outrageous stories of all time. If I could curse in here, and if all of you had the gumption to curse, you would listen to the story. If you really heard it, you would say, holy sh-. And don't let the fact that we're in church somehow cloud how over the top this story is. It's why the story is regularly called prodigal, which in Greek means wasteful. It's just so wasteful on so many levels. And the second thing that I want you to notice about this is that the focus and the centerpiece of this story, this parable, isn't the sheep, isn't the coin, isn't the sons, but it's the shepherd, the lady, and the father, which means this whole thing is about God. That's why the title of today's sermon is The Scandalous Father and His Scandalous Love. Okay? So let's dive in. And we're going to kind of go through the story step by step and just kind of highlight the things that are going on that I think are just absolutely ridiculous. And then we'll kind of go through and then we'll wrap it all up. The first thing you notice is what I call the ask. A man had two sons and the younger son said to him, give me my share of the estate. Now as a son, this younger son, right, both brothers actually knew that they had an inheritance waiting for them when their father died. That's how it works. It might even work like that in your family, right? But this younger son wakes up one day and goes, I ain't having none of that. So he finally decides to gather up all of his gumption and courage and decide, you know what, I can't take this anymore. So he goes to his dad and he says, dad, I got to talk to you for a second. And he says this, basically, I'm paraphrasing. He goes, dad, I know I'm supposed to wait till you die till I get what's mine. But then I realized, like, why do I have to wait for that? That'll make no sense. You're dead to me anyway, so it'll make no difference. So why don't you just, you know, and then just give me what's mine. Sorry for using Korean curse words, but that's in Korean. That's sagaji to a whole new level. That's prime grade A douchebag type stuff. The gall, the gumption, and the nerve to say, Dad, why don't you go, Dad? Actually, you know what? You ain't even worth that. I'll just, just give it to me now. And then the next thing that happens is what I call the grant. So he divided the wealth between them. The father grants it. That's insane. Any of the fathers in here, you're probably like, what? Like, if you just really thought, if, you're, if your son or your daughter or your, whoever, your child ever said that to you, 
Because every other Middle Eastern father, or any father for that matter, it seems like, and definitely every Korean father, I think, would have beaten the you-know-what out of that guy. You know, even at the basics to teach him a lesson. But this father doesn't. He grants it, which is mean, which means that he bears the rejection. He bears the shame from the son, the embarrassment from all the villages. We probably, we talked about this before, how that culture is a lot like Korean culture or Asian culture, right? Where that when this happens, when you have a son that does this to you as a father, the entire village finds out. And you're basically the worst father of the year or of the century. Your son should not be doing these things to you. Can you imagine if you did this to your own parents? Everyone in, the, everyone in the village at this point are probably thinking, oh no. Just pretend to me. Pete Chung done lost his mind. That boy finally made him go crazy, and look at what's happening. So the father then takes a third of his land, a third of his cattle, a third of all the animals, a third of all the crops, and then says, here, gives it to you. And then notice, there's not one ounce or one word of, you'll regret this. Are you sure? Like, really? Like, like just... Take a, take, a, take a moment, think about it. No, no, just, you know what? How about, let's go out for dinner. I'll buy you your favorite thing and then you can think about it and then we'll process and then you'll probably change your mind afterwards. Like just, just settle, just settle. That's probably what your parents would do. That's probably what I would do if I, didn't, if I hadn't beaten my son first. You know like, what I mean? Like that, that's what we would do. The nice ones would have tried to convince us not to do it and say, you know, I, you're mad about something. I get it. I get it. If it was me, I'd be like, let me just buy you some sangyup sans and you'll be fine. But not this one. And you'll see why next then the departure happens. Not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and then went on a journey to a distant country. To gather everything in the Greek literally means to turn to cash. It means to liquidate. Because, you know, the younger son can't take the animals, can't take the land. He can't be like, I'm going to take this chunk of land and take care of it for himself. He's got to carry cash. So then he's got to take all of his land. He's got the list of all the things that he now owns, and he's got to go around the village and be like, hey, sir, uh, you, you interested in buying some cattle? Hey, sir, you interested in buying some land? Hey, sir, you interested in buying this? And he goes around and around and around, and he starts to liquidate everything. And again, if you remember the shame-based culture of the day, he's probably selling less than it's worth because they're probably pissed off, and they're really angry, and he doesn't have time to bargain. He doesn't have to be like, and, you know, he's like, hey, can you want to buy this cattle? And then someone's like, yeah, I'll give you $100 for it. Just pretend that's the price, right? Don't, don't matter, right? And then they'd be like, $100 for you? For you, scumbag? I, no. 50 tops. And he's like, whatever, take it. Because the anger in the village is building. So he carries it, he, he sells it, he sells up a third of his land, and he takes it to the highest bidder. He didn't even try to borrow or anything, and he just goes and goes and he sells it. And then he gathers up all this cash. He's got a fat wad of cash or whatever, bag of coin or whatever it is, and then he gets out and he gets out with the quickness because he is at public enemy number one in the village now. And then the next... He goes in the kitchen, and then the wasting. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. This word loose living is the Greek word asotos. If you look it up in the Greek dictionary, it means shamelessly immoral of madness that knows no bound. Apologies to the younger ones in the room. This kind of behavior, whatever he was doing, this is not rated R. This is NC-17, dare I say, pornographic level kind of things. He didn't waste it playing Xbox and Fortnite. He wasted it doing Bizonette Street type stuff, let's just say. And then he wasted it all. Quickly, might I add. The next thing that happens is what we call, or what I call, the bottom. A famine hits. He's starving. I'm paraphrasing on this one, right? So he hires himself out to a citizen, and he was so hungry that he would have eaten what the pigs were eating. Kind of rock bottom he hits. His younger son is so desperate and hungry. He's literally starving himself because he got no friends. 
So then he hires himself. In the Greek, it's literally to glue yourself to someone. And the reason is because he went around, and I'm trying, he's trying to get a job, and all they're saying, no, 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 right? Again, you have to kind of understand the foreign dynamics here. He's a Jewish dude in a non-Jewish country, right? A Jewish hot mess who's all probably dirty and jacked up, smells like booze or whatever it is that they're doing over there, right? He don't smell good. He don't look good. He don't, nothing. And he's trying to find some jobs just so he can get some food to eat. And finally, he's begging and begging and begging. And I imagine the scene to be like this. He gets to this owner, and he just literally just clings to his thing. Like, Please, sir. I muted myself. That's crazy, right? He begs. And then this owner's like, okay, you want to work for me? Fine. But go feed the pigs. And I think the owner's probably thinking like, this Jewish boy, no self-respecting Jewish boy is going to go feed pigs. That's like clearly unpure and unrighteous. But this boy is so desperate. He's like, hey, I'll do whatever, whatever. And he goes to feed, but then they treat him like, poop because he's a Jewish boy and he's a hot mess and he ain't got no rights. He ain't got nothing to barter with. And so then they make him go feed the pigs, but they don't even give him no food to the point where he's like, I, I, I'd eat what the pigs are eating. I mean, that's rock bottom if there's ever a rock bottom. Now you might ask, why not go home? Well, because he can't because he knows what's coming to him. If he does, the villagers would mock him They'd make his life miserable. This is bullying to the nth degree. The elders of the village would actually probably punish him, make him serve the consequences of what he did to their, for his father, but also to the village. The shame. The brother, you'll see next week, and he don't play around. And the father, this son probably assumes that the father is madder than you know what, and so he can't go home, and so he hits rock bottom. But then at the bottom, a thing happens that I call the awakening. And when he came to his senses, it says, one day he wakes up and he has an epiphany. Boop, a light bulb goes, bing, goes off. And he thinks, and he goes, wait, wait, wait. How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but here I am starving? So in his desperate state, he realizes that his father is a good man who treated even his hired servants, hired slaves, way better than he's being treated. And so he goes, I know it's going to be rough going back. I know it's going to be real rough going back, but you know what? Because my father is a good man, it's way better than this. He thinks of the father, and then he decides, I'm going to go back. So he picks up his stuff, and he starts going, and then he practices the speech. Part one, I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, and then this is his speech in three parts. You'll see it on the screen, I think. First part, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. He's confessing his sin. He knows that he's done wrong, and he wants to admit it. It's very important. Second part of the speech is, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He acknowledges that there's consequences for these sins, and he knows that his action has cost him his right to be a son of the Father. And the third part of his speech, it says, make me as one of your hired men. He wants to earn his right. He wants to make up for his sin. He wants to pay back the debt that he owes the Father, which is impossible, but he still tries. And so he's on his way home, and he's you know, all messed up and whatever. He's on his way home. He's practicing this. Father, I've sinned against heaven and you. I don't deserve to be your son, right? And make me like a higher servant. Father, I just, just back and forth, back and forth, just on the journey over and over and over and over again until it's perfect. Then the reception. While he was a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion for him, ran and embraced him and kissed him. The father saw him. The father was waiting. Can you believe that? The father was looking, the father was anticipating, the father was hoping and praying. From the moment the dude left home, his father had been waiting and hoping. 
And then when he saw him, he felt compassion for him. It's the Greek word splankon that's only ever used to describe Jesus and then this father. That word splankon is one of my favorites. It's really where your like, guts are being ripped apart. Your heart is being so torn up. His heart is being ripped to pieces for the things that he's feeling for his son. I think he knew what the son knew. Because they say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Who else knows the son like the father? And notice, no shame, no scorn, no anger, no bitterness, none of that. Just compassion, splankna. And then after the splankna, he runs to him. He can't wait to get to his son. And back in those days, fathers don't run to others. People run to them, but not this father. So he picks up his robe. Back in the day, they wear these long robes, and they don't have slits. They, they have slits maybe come to here, so you can't really run in them. So he's got to pick up his robes, and then he's got to run, which means like all the undergarments that he ain't supposed to show to nobody, they're all showing because he's running like a madman, like running to his son to get to him because he wants to get to them. But also, you can't miss that the fact that he has to get to his son before everyone else in the village does because he's got a price to pay which is why then when he gets there before everybody else, he embraces him and then kisses him. To hug someone like that is basically say, I cover you culturally, which means if you want to get to him, you got to get through me first. I imagine like a conversion scene. He's running to his son. The son's coming and all the visitors like, oh, heck no. And they're all getting there and he gets to him first and then he embraces him and he starts kissing him. And then all the villagers got to back off because then they got to go to the father and they ain't willing to do that. And keeps kissing him, says the Greek, over and over and over again. And notice, there's no go clean yourself up, you're filthy, take a shower, which is what I I might say that. My my wife would definitely say that. But, you know, like, go and clean yourself up. But more, when you are embraced and you're kissed, it's a sign of acceptance and unconditional love. This one act has so many layers. It's to be loved and accepted in a way that no one, that says to everyone else, whatever you want to do to him, you got to do it to me now. I take all of his shame and I bear it on me. And if you wanted to punish him for it, you got to punish me. And remember, he's been with pigs and he hasn't showered yet because nobody would give him that dignity. Then the next, the speech, part two. And the son says to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. And his father's like, you better believe you've done that. Confessing our sins is so critical in this process. There's freedom in doing so. No hiding the second part, I'm no longer willing to call him. And, God, and then he says, you better believe it. That's true too. Consequences of sin are real, his father saying. Your sins, real. Our sins, real. They're not light. They're not small. They aren't unremarkable. They're actually real things that cause consequences. Sin breaks relationships. I hope you know that. Sin isn't a wrong thing. It's the breaking or destroying of a relationship. I always use an example, but sin is always relational. Right? If I sin against Toby... Unsu can't punch me in the face to make up for it. Toby has to do that to me because it's a relational thing. Sin is breaking of a relationship. It's obliterating a heart and love that once existed into nothingness is the way I look at it. And then the third part. Well, you noticed, didn't you? There is no third part because the interruption then comes next. The father says, no, 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 just stop right there. So the father then says to his slaves, bring the best robe. That's the father's robe. That's my robe, he's saying. God clothes you, clothes you. He clothes his son. No need to clean up. Why? Because my clothes, my righteousness, my honor, all of that is yours. 
You can't clean yourself up. Only my robe can clean you up. My righteousness gives it to you. Then get the ring, the signet ring. That's the stamp. That's the ring that people sign documents with. That's the power. He's saying, now you didn't have no power, but now that you're back, you can have this ring. You have all the power and all the rights of being a son. Imagine, the son who wasted everything now has rights and power to all things. Sandals, only daughters and son wear sandals. Slaves go barefoot. And the fattened calf, reserved for only the highest and most distinguished guests, the party of all parties. For this son. All of it, if you put it all together, reminds me of what B said at the retreat talking about the shepherd in Luke 15. Who does that? I mean, just think about it for a second, for real, for real. Who in their right mind does this? Who in their right mind treats people like this? Who in their right mind thinks this way? Who in their right mind does this? Only our father, you find. Only this father. See, this is a question that should be reverberating in our mind. Who does that? It shouldn't make any sense to you. If this story makes sense to you, you ain't hearing it, right? Because it shouldn't make any sense. Our sense of justice should be flaring so hard right now because this son didn't do nothing, didn't serve a consequence, wasn't taught a lesson. All those things will say, be like, none of it happened. You're making this kid so spoiled, you're going to let him do whatever you want, and he's going to just run all over you again. Who does that? No one but our father. No Everything he does from the beginning to the end is illogical, is nonsensical, is outrageous, irresponsible, and totally scandalous. Even if he took just one of the things that he does, it would be nonsensical to the nth degree, but all of it put together should literally blow your brains. You just don't understand what in the world is going on. If your sibling did this, and your parents treated your sibling like this, you would be angrier than angry. Let's be honest. If your teachers treated your friends this way, you would be angrier than angry. If we treated our felons and our convicts this way in our court of systems of law, you would be angrier than angry. So here's the two things that I think we must realize, if indeed we are hearing it. The first thing is the depth, the heaviness, the weight, the insanity, the outrageousness, and the unpayableness, as we learn in Matthew 18, of our sin, your sin, my sin. You have to recognize the utter depravity and the poverty the thing that people realize, all those folks and all the missions, uh, you know, testimonies that they shared, all the things that they realize, but perhaps even deeper than that. Is that the way you see your sin or sin in general? Or do you not sin, so therefore this doesn't matter to you? Then the second thing is the immeasurable, the unbelievable height, depth, and breadth, as Paul says in Ephesians, of God's love. The love where nothing can separate you from God. Nothing at all. No power, no principalities, nothing. And the love of God that causes him to place his own son, Jesus, on a cross to be viciously murdered for your sin and mine. 
who does that? Now, I want to share with you a story, because apparently I don't share enough stories, number one, but also I think it's applicable, um, to help you hear these things. As you know, and Maddie mentioned it, last weekend, shooters in El Paso, Texas, and Dayton, Ohio, killed about 31 people and injured way more in two separate shootings that happened about 13 hours apart. Statistically, apparently, there have been more mass shootings, 251 in our country, than the number of days, 216, that was as of a week ago. Mass shootings defined as where one or more people are injured or killed in a gun-violent occasion. Now, every time this happens in our country, we feel the outrage, hopefully. And every time we pray for the victims. But as you know, if you've been with us for a while, we have a practice here at RK that not actually, to be honest, a lot of people don't like, but we pray for the shooter. And there have been some of you who were like, why do we do that? Why do we pray for a scum like him or her? I've explained it, but I'll explain it to you again. The reason why we do this every single time is because I, Pete Chung, know that if I was that person in the exact same life circumstance of all the things that I pull the trigger to. Now you might be like, there he goes again, just being real dramatic, likes to get all the attention, likes to make things, you know, bigger than it is. But here's how I know. And again, I apologize for some of the graphic nature of some of this but I just couldn't get away from doing it. If you know anything about my life, I grew up with an immense amount of hatred for my father because of the way that I grew up. Multiple divorces, he caused one of my moms, one of his wives to have an abortion, all that kind of stuff. It was just terrible. And our only real interaction for 24 years was basically whenever he would get mad at me and he would do things like he would throw cups of coffee at me, hot cups of coffee. One time he threw a knife at me and, you know, just all sorts of ridiculous things. You name it, probably done it. I know it's crazy, but that's kind of the way that I grew up. And so you can probably imagine how, like, injusted, injustice, whatever, like that I felt from him. And so when I was in high school, in parts of college, just being truthfully honest, there were so many days where I wanted to kill that man and just end the misery altogether. I had plans, thoughts. The only reason I didn't draw them up is because you know that I can't draw for nothing, but I had plans. And if someone would have guaranteed me, if a lawyer, not even a lawyer, if a judge or somebody, a policeman would have guaranteed me that I could have done it and gotten away with it, I 100% guarantee you I would have done it. That's how much anger was in my heart. But here's even more despicable than that, which may surprise you. The only reason why I didn't do it, remember the guarantee, the only reason why I didn't do it was because my biggest dream in life was to get through school, go to the best school that I could. I went to UVA, which is like the UT equivalent of Texas, right? It's one of the best public schools in the entire nation. I wanted to go, get out of there, go to law school, become the lawyer that he wanted me to become, the thing that I promised him when I was seven, right? And then go all the way to law school, graduate, 
And I knew how this was gonna work out. The moment I graduated, my dad would've been so happy. He would've bought the t-shirts, he would've done the whole thing, he would've made all the plans, I would've told him about the graduation, and I would've done all these things, and then basically when it was time to fly, I would've said, F you, dude, don't ever show up, because I don't want you, none in my life. And I would've buried his soul into the ground. I wanted to do that more than anything in my life. Killing him would've taken that satisfaction away from me. You see how twisted that is? So I didn't, for that reason and that reason, only. So I recognize for myself that if I'm in the same circumstances as many of these folks, the people who are at Planned Parenthood, that I would be the same. It's the thing that Peter asked. It's the thing that every so many people on missions have asked. Why me? Why did I not? Why was I not born in this scenario? Why was I not born in Haiti? Why was I not born in this scenario? Why was not? Why was I not the you know the child of an unfortunate you know sexual abuse case and all this? Why me? Why not me? We'll ask. But then you got to ask yourself this question. And I apologize if I'm being mean today, but I think it's just appropriate. You got to ask yourself: If you were in those shoes, if you were like them, would you not do it? Be honest for a hot second. See, we'll learn next week that most of us in this room are actually the elder sons. So if you're going away to college, I hope you would check it out on YouTube, not because it's important, but I think it just kind of wraps it all up. Because although we have lots of hurt, hate, and anger in our hearts, most of us in this room, because we're Korean and good Christians, we don't have the gumption to do what the younger son did. We like to hate secretly in our heart and still be the good person so people think that we're good. But we'll see next week. There's a deeper sin to even that. But again, don't get it twisted. Because I know, I have this sneaky suspicion in my heart that if I gave every single one of you an opportunity to come up to the stage right here, standing where I'm standing, and admit the very deepest and most wicked sin of your heart to all the people, you wouldn't do it. Why? Because you know how wretched it is. And you can't quite admit to that. I think this is why Tim Keller says that the gospel is this. This is his definition. He says this on the screen. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Is it not there? Let me read it to you again. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Christ Jesus than we ever dared It seems to me that we won't actually understand the gospel in this parable unless you are willing to admit that both of these things are true. That indeed you are more wicked and flawed and sinful than you ever dared believe and admit, but that somehow, some way, in the insanity of God's economy, that we are the same, more loved and more accepted than we ever dared Both of these things must be true for the gospel to sink deeper and deeper into your heart for you to hear that. 
Because if you don't think your sin is great, then God's love is not all that great either. There's an inverse relationship that happens in this setting. And I know we're afraid. Let's be honest, right? Because if people discovered how wicked I am, people discovered how wicked you were, people discovered how sinful you were, all these things, then you think, who would ever love me? But you know the answer to that. Our Father does. Remember, who does that? Well, he does. See, where everyone else would reject you, he doesn't. Where everyone else would kick you to the curb, he doesn't. Where everyone else would ridicule you, bully you, and do all these things, remind you of how terrible you are, he does not. Why? He waits for us, he runs to us, he embraces us, he kisses us, he clothes us, he blesses us, he does all of these things. He restores us and redeems us, and you got to ask, who in their right mind does that? Our God. Who loves someone like me? My God. And when you recognize that, you become undone. But mark my words. Actually, they're not mine, they're God's. If you are unwilling to recognize the depth of your sin, the gospel and the glory and the grace of him will matter to you none. Because you'll be like the Pharisees and the scribes who said, I earn this. So today, as we respond, I invite you to put it all out there. To give it all up to Jesus. To take your dirtiest shame and to put in the light of his glorious grace. And then have it melt away and find yourself as free as you could possibly ever be. Because if you don't, you won't know the freedom, I promise. But if you do, then you'll end up where this younger son ends up, which is partying with his father. Having a restored relationship with his father that he never had before. So church, before we sing, before we respond, would you go before the Father? Be honest with who you are and your sin, knowing that that's the ticket to the glorious grace and the gospel truth. And then my prayer is that when we get to next week and we look at the elder son, that all the walls would come down. And if those of you in this room who don't want to, who can't recognize or who don't want to pray this way, I'm praying for you. That you would find the freedom of knowing that we are wretched, wicked sinners who are loved by an outrageous God. And that's the way of life. So take some time, respond, and then we'll sing together.